You're listening to episode 117 of 88 Cups of Tea with Yin Chang. Am I doing this right? <laughs> Hi, I'm your host, Yin Chang, and thanks for joining me on 88 Cups of Tea. This podcast is created to leave you feeling motivated from interviews with storytellers, where we learn how they create opportunities for a successful career without losing sight of the values that make us human. Woo, that was a really long run on sentence. What's up, storytellers? We are back from hiatus. I hope you had the most incredible start to the new year, and I wish you all a very happy, healthy, and productive 2018. I'm so excited to be back, and I can't wait to share some pretty awesome updates and news with you. Before we get into announcements, I want to take a moment and thank one of our listeners for leaving one of the most heartwarming and touching reviews on iTunes for us. The listener's username is Ponyfly, and this lovely human being rated us five stars and said our show is inspiring, compassionate, and fun. Ponyfly continued to write, It's hard to pack an interview with laughs, heartfelt moments, inspiration, and the stone-cold truth, but every one of Yin's interviews manages that. Her guests are varied, smart, engaged, and self-aware, but they get to those personal, truthful places on this podcast because of Yin's empathetic and confident interview skills. This podcast is curious and wondrous in the best of ways. Highly recommend for all creative types, but especially writers and readers. Wow. Thank you so much for leaving that dream come true review. You got me all teary-eyed. I very much appreciate you taking the time out of your day to leave that thoughtful write-up, and I am truly so grateful and ridiculously lucky to have listeners like you in our community. Now on to the next part of our intro. We have a private Facebook group. If I could describe it using only emojis, I would be using thousands of red heart emojis, sprinkling in some of those pink heart emojis with the two little hearts, throw in a house emoji here and there, and that emoji with parents and children, and the emoji with the heart eyes. And of course, some more red heart emojis. So if you vibe with those kinds of emojis or you personally use those all the time, we would love to hang out with you in our group at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. If those emojis want to make you gag, then this group is not for you, and that's all good. It's so fun in there, and it's filled with the kindest and most caring members. Join us over at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 cups of tea. Before we introduce today's special guest, I have an exciting announcement. I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sono Charapatra, Emily X. Arpan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Han. I'm thrilled we'll be discussing the intersection of culture and fiction, one of my favorite topics to talk about. And it's all happening in New York on Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. Storytellers, this is my very first ever panel discussion that I'm moderating. So for all of my fellow New Yorkers and New York listeners, I would really love to see you there. We have some more exciting news I'm announcing at the end of our guest intro, so be sure to listen all the way through. Now on to our special guest. I am so excited to kick off the first episode of 2018 featuring one of our longtime listeners, Gloria Chow. Gloria is an MIT grad turned dentist turned writer, and her debut American Panda releases on February 6th. In today's episode, we discuss the traditional roles of women and the family values ingrained in the Taiwanese culture. Gloria walks us through the details of her revision process and the most important things she learned about revisions. We talk about crafting the main character's voice, the most exciting thing that's happened during her debut year, and we touch on the difficulties she's faced trying to market a YA book set in college. We also touch on the inspiration for American Panda's cover design, how much input Gloria had with the design process, and a really cool tidbit about how one of the details inspired Gloria to tweak a part of her story. Now on to the rest of the announcements for today. We've got some really cool things for you in Gloria's show notes page, like an exclusive excerpt from American Panda just for our 88 Cups of Tea community, an adorable cartoon to go along with that excerpt, and a writing prompt from Gloria, again, exclusive just for you listeners. 
she shared a writing prompt to specifically get you out of a writer's block. To grab your copy of the prompt, head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Gloria dash chow and scroll all the way to the bottom until you see a box that says writing prompt. And last but not least, we're adding Instagram story takeovers by some of our guests for our upcoming episodes. We've got an awesome lineup of guests, many who are down to show us behind the scenes of their lives the day of their episode air date. Be sure to follow us on Instagram at 88 Cups of Tea to catch these takeovers. And sometimes we'll even have giveaways exclusive for those who watch our Instagram takeovers. A lot of the time, you'll get to have sneak peek behind the scenes of their writing life. I am so thrilled to have Gloria launch our very first Instagram story takeover today on February 1st. You'll get a sneak peek of her life as a writer and one lucky winner will receive a signed copy of American Panda. To enter for a chance to win, be sure to look out for Gloria's announcement of her giveaway on her Instagram story takeover and reply to that story by sending us a private message and tapping the heart button in the message. You have exactly 24 hours to enter from the time that the story is first posted. So you want to act fast. And now let's jump right in. Hey, everyone. We are back from hiatus and we have a very special guest with us today. We have Gloria Chow, who is a part of our community. And I could not be more proud or excited to have her on the show. Gloria, how are you? I am so great. Thank you so much for having me. And this is a dream come true being on 88 Cups of Tea. This is insane because we had you in our 88th episode. It was so crazy during your story and about American Panda. And I remember you giving a tidbit about it and also a snapshot about what we could expect over the next year when your book comes out. It's just insane to realize how long ago, well, it was kind of, it wasn't that long ago, the 88th episode, but still to go from there to now and then having your bark in my hands right now, looking at your cover, it's surreal. How are you feeling right now? I agree. I mean, I have a hard time wrapping my head around it a lot of times. I actually just received my finished copies, the hardcover, <gasps> and I feel like I'm still kind of looking at it, not quite believing that it has happened. So the second I got them, I took off the dust cover. And they have dumplings and chopsticks stamped on the front cover. It was perfect. And they did such an incredible job. I remember I saw you post it on either it was Instagram or was it Twitter? So adorable. Let's jump into a basic summary or snapshot. Let them know what they can expect or what kind of summary that you're cool with sharing. Oh, definitely. So the book follows a 17-year-old MIT freshman whose very traditional parents want her to become a doctor and marry someone that they have selected who is, you know, at Harvard and also going to be a doctor and also Taiwanese. Problem is, May is falling asleep in her biology classes. She really hates germs. She's so squeamish about them. She's constantly using hand sanitizer and she's already starting to fall for one of her Japanese classmates who her parents don't approve of. I'm very excited for everyone to get the book because for those who already have ARCs, they're super excited about it and they've loved your book already. Me being part Taiwanese on my dad's side. So my mom, she's Chinese Malaysian, but I very much grew up with the Taiwanese side. A lot of what you wrote really hit home with me. Oh, that means so much. I could see a lot of it is very much inspired by real life of what you yourself experienced. And I know everybody has their own experiences and, and all that. And I understand that. But for me, I very much felt like, oh my gosh, I completely understand that. I understand why the mom felt that way. Having conversations with my own parents. And I also understand the sayings, the phrases and all of that. So we're going to jump in even more, but just had to kick it off and say it was so heartwarming, very moving. Thank you so much. That means the world. (laughs) I also want to know before we dive deeper, was there a specific incident that prompted you to write American Panda? I know in general that you've had your own experiences and you wanted to share it with people, but was there one specific moment in your life growing up? Or was there a specific catalyst? Because I know that you mentioned in our 88th episode that when you got into dentistry, your MIT grad, you were a dentist afterwards, and then it wasn't what you expected. I remember you said reading books was what made you happy Mm -hmm. at that time or brought you happiness. And your husband suggested, why don't you write? Mm -hmm. Do you remember if there was a moment where Even before that, was there a catalyst, something like that? I would say the biggest one was when I decided to switch 
from dentistry to writing. And that was a really tough time for me. And my parents weren't supportive. And, you know, it was really difficult for us. I wasn't really communicating on my end. I almost didn't know how to explain to them what I was going through. I understood where they were coming from, where they were worried about me. They wanted me to be financially stable and which only made it harder to talk about because I did understand where they were coming from, but I didn't know how to explain that. Even despite that, I was really unhappy and I couldn't keep doing it. And it was when I went through that tough time where my parents didn't approve and yet I had already decided I was doing this that I wanted to tell a story like May's where I really wanted other people to know that, you know, these things happen. The cultural gap is really tough and sometimes it's really hard to communicate with your parents, especially coming from this child of immigrant situation where, you know, growing up, we didn't really talk about a lot of things. And there's a little bit of this, an understanding where you do what your parents say and you honor them. And I think I was really stifled by that. And it took us a long time to walk through that, to be able to talk about my life decisions and what I was doing. And I was already out of college. I was already in my mid twenties and I still, you know, didn't even know how to talk to them about it, even though I was out of their house and married. So that was kind of a big moment was when I was really struggling through this life decision that I'd made. I wanted to write it into a book. Writing about May actually really helped me view things from a different perspective. It was a lot easier to face all these struggles when it's not exactly you, even though May is a lot like me. And it kind of made me think about things from a different way. It really helped me see my parents' point of view easier, you know, when you're not completely in it and you're you're separated enough, you're writing characters, but you know, they're close enough that it can help you kind of figure out some things in your own life. So that was a big moment. I'm going to jump into that a little bit more, but I just want to give listeners more of a background into Taiwanese culture. And also, I mean, especially through your own lens as Taiwanese American. In our 88th episode, you also mentioned that you are the youngest child and you're the only daughter, right? Yeah, I have two older brothers. And your oldest brother is a doctor and your second brother is a college professor of economics. Yes. Just so that they understand, like, you know, why it's so difficult for you to bring up your own life choices to your parents. Cause, you know, that's the part that's so jarring, right? The cultural clash where we were maybe second or third generation, it's a lot easier. Right. It's a lot more challenging when you're first generation. Did your brothers have any interest in anything else, like whether it's in the art world over being a doctor at one point, and then he was shut down and you observed that and then backed off? Um, Not really. My oldest brother always said from when he was a really young age that he wanted to be a doctor and he went through with it. My middle brother did kind of switch through a lot of careers and he was trying a lot of things out, but everything was always something that my parents would have approved of. He started off wanting to be a doctor. He thought about being a lawyer, you know, all things that were very prestigious that they would have been okay with. And so I never really saw anything that would have really turned me off from doing this, but I also knew what my parents would have reacted even without exactly Mm -hmm. I mean they never explicitly told me you have to be a doctor but growing up it was always math and science and they expected us to go after some certain fields and they never explicitly said it but you kind of know I feel like it's a common immigrant parent thing yeah absolutely because I know in your book for American Panda you were mentioning there's a lot of talk about what your own parents bring up as examples of other kids around our ages. So it's like, oh, hello, did you see Miss So-and-So's daughter is excelling in this and also doing tap and ballet and piano and violin (laughs) at the same time and also getting all the awards. So why are you not like that? Where is your 100 rather than your 99 on your math test? When you wrote that about the comparisons, I'm like, oh my gosh, I totally understand that. I wonder if it's like that for you. Do you grow up with your parents saying, look at so-and-so's child who's doing so well and look at the other kid who chose the other route. You don't want to go that way. I saw my friends go through it a lot. My parents didn't do it as much. There was a little bit of that kind of underneath, but they never explicitly picked one person to compare me to. But I was part of this Chinese dance group growing up that was so competitive and cutthroat. And, you know, it was mostly Chinese girls and everybody was cutthroat for competing for solos. And I remember when you graduated, they made a big deal and they would have a presentation and announce, you know, this person is going to MIT and this person is going to Harvard. And there was one year that basically everybody went to MIT or Harvard. And there was one year there was a girl and they didn't announce where she was going. And I remember thinking, this is so weird. And the parent didn't tell anyone where she was going. And I had to do a lot of 
undercover sleuthing, you know, on Facebook and talking to people to find out where she went. And she went to a perfectly good college. It just wasn't MIT or Harvard. And they were so ashamed that they went to all these lanes to not let people know where she was going. And that's kind of the culture. It wasn't completely explicit, but you see all these things and they affect you and you know what a big deal it is to everyone in this very small community. Yeah, for sure. And I love that you showed that as an example. Also growing up and just sitting in family conversations, even maybe from your time that you were researching and asking questions to your mom or your dad, what was it like for you through your lens as a Taiwanese American of how you feel that traditional Taiwanese people view the perfect child or the perfect daughter? There was definitely a high expectation that you would focus on studies, get very good grades and be all in honors and AP classes. Basically, all of that was working toward getting you into a good school. That was big. I feel rankings are huge with my parents and a lot of other Mm -hmm. Chinese parents. Colleges are ranked. They'll look and, you know, and know what number things are and they'll reference that after college. They want you to be in a financially stable career. I feel part of it. They want to be able to have the means, you know, have safe face when they tell their friends what their kids are doing. I think that's in a lot of cultures and definitely Chinese culture has some of that. Just something that sounds respectable, like lawyer or, you know, on Wall Street or doctor, all of those kinds of tough to get jobs that have cachet and definitely marrying someone and having kids pretty soon. (laughs) What do you think? Because I know there are some things that were brought up in the book where it shows, oh, what is the perfect Taiwanese wife? Mm -hmm. And it's hard because, again, you're Taiwanese American. So you have your own viewpoint of what it's like to be happy in a marriage, but then you have that pressure of duty versus happiness. Could you give the listeners an overview of what you grew up understanding of what it means to be the perfect wife? Growing up, I definitely thought the women had to do all the cooking and the cleaning and all the household chores. You know, I mean, my parents left Taiwan in a time where in most of the world, it was still pretty divided and sexist. And that's what I grew up seeing and hearing from my mom. You know, you have to be ready to do all this when you're a wife. Even now, I still have interesting conversations with my mom where she almost doesn't really understand my relationship with my husband. And she's always so confused when I'll be on the phone with her and I'll say like, oh, he's doing the dishes. And she'll be like, really? It's hard for her to wrap her head around that that's an okay role. And she always is, well, is he okay doing that? You know, is he going to be upset about And You know, I'm like, no, it's fine. We have a different kind of relationship. And I think she's slowly starting to see that more. And one really good thing, I think, is that she's starting to change her perspective a little bit. And I can see some differences with her and my dad. And there was a funny thing where when my husband and I first started dating, by the way, my parents were a lot like May's parents, where I saw them every single weekend basically until I moved away. (laughs) And even though I dated my husband for five years while we were living near them, I mean, my husband saw them once a week for the first five years of our relationship. Oh my gosh. So he's quite the trick, right? He was the keeper. Um, So sweet. So one of our first dates, he would come over to my house and we would go out to dinner with my parents and my mom saw my husband well he was just a couple dates in them but he would dish food out to me and my mom saw that and I saw her poke my dad and she was like why don't you ever do that for me oh that's and then now he does and so you know there were a lot of little things like that and she saw us holding hands and now she'll kind of wrap an arm around my dad and so it's really nice to see that she's been able to see the differences and talk to my dad about it that is so cute your husband he's not talking I'm assuming he's not he's white his mom's side of the family is Greek and he grew up in a pretty traditional Greek household and so my grandma actually loved that and she was like oh the Greeks are so similar to us in a lot of ways which I thought was funny because I feel like he's pretty American (laughs) (laughs) in your book one of the love interests is Japanese American and then listeners will learn more about how that affects the relationship with May or not. For you in real life, what were your parents' reactions? Uh, My daughter just brought home a white boy. Like, how was that? (laughs) So that was actually okay for me. I actually do remember when I was very little, I was less than six, maybe I was five. And I came home and I told my mom I had a crush on someone in my preschool and he was Japanese. And I remember my mom sitting me down and saying, that's going to be an issue for (laughs) 
family. <laughs> and I was five. I just wanted the conversation to be over. But obviously, because I was so young, it really stayed with me after that, even though my mom has come around a lot. But she grew up hearing all these stories from my grandma. And it definitely pervades to, sadly, these kinds of relationships. Yes. But going back to my husband, my parents never really had an issue. And they actually loved him from the second they met him. And that was not the case with most of my past boyfriends. And they definitely were really strict. I wasn't allowed to date in high school. That was the whole thing, which is going to be a whole other book. I really am not quite sure why they were okay with him. We've never really talked about it. But for my dad, I was especially shocked because he was always so protective of me. With my mom, I do think there's actually a little bit of May's mom in there, which is that she had a really tough time with some of the in-law traditions that mm-hmm. um, pervade the culture. And generally, this isn't specific to my family. I don't want to be Yeah, negative. no, totally. Um, no, but, but I so appreciate the example. So like generally in the culture, it's expected that the mother-in-law is basically the head of everything. And yeah, the queen. Exactly, the queen. From what I've observed, I could see that too. I, the daughter-in-laws are usually treated like shit. And, are expected yeah. to do whatever the mother-in-law says, no matter how demeaning or humiliating yep. or horrible. Yep. And there's this terrible cycle where even though that mother-in-law went through the same exact thing, it's almost mm-hmm. like they think it's, well, a it's my turn. Cycle. Exactly. Yes. It's my turn. I had to go through this. Now she has to mm-hmm. go through this. By the time they rise up to be queen bee of the family as a mother-in-law <laughs> from daughter-in-law to mother-in-law next, it's it's my revenge now. And it really reminds me of bullying where yes. it's, you need to stop that toxic cycle. It doesn't have to mean you have to repeat it just so that you that that'll heal your wounds from being treated poorly from the previous cycle when they were daughter-in-laws. But I think it takes a really strong person to realize, okay, this cultural practice is not okay. It's not okay. And I think that right now it's changed a lot. It seems like it's improved so much more now compared to when it was our parents' generation. It was really difficult, especially our grandparents' situation. Forget it. That was probably so insane. I mean, I'm just hearing stories too where I'm just like, dude, that is so effed up. Hell no, I would not stand for that. I would be the worst daughter-in-law. I would throw shit. I'm like, oh, hell no. You don't pick that shit up. Uh-uh, I would be the worst. And my mom is even getting to the point where she's like, I can't believe I went along with that. And Which is good, I know, you know. She's- yeah. This is an awakening because right. for her, it's thousands of years of tradition where it's right. okay, well, no one from what I grew up and understood went against this. So I guess exactly. this is normal. It's kind of like that situation where I totally get where your mom is coming from. And I'm thrilled that she's open to hearing, hey, this is not the only way. And I'm so thrilled to hear that. My mom actually probably preferred for me to be with someone who wasn't Chinese because I think she was afraid (gasps) that I would go through something similar. And I think she always wanted me to steer towards someone more American who wouldn't have this kind of in-law relationship. I could totally see that because she sees it like your way to escape the traditions. Exactly. Absolutely. I also want to say that I love amaze mom's character. I think she's so lovable and so endearing. Obviously, you know, there's things that irritate us as first generation kids. But at the same time, when you dig deeper, you understand where it comes from, especially when we're older, Mm -hmm. we start to understand more of, okay, I, you know, I formed my own strong opinions, but I respect my parents and how they were raised and why they do what they do. I understand that now. But for your mom, I do remember again, the 88th episode we were talking and you mentioned that you asked your mom some difficult questions for the research process. I would love to dig a little bit deeper because we didn't get a chance to for the 88th episode. And also I didn't get a chance to read your book, but now that I have, I can understand where you were going with that. Mm -hmm. So before we jump into that, how was your relationship with your mom before the writing started? Before the writing started, we had a good relationship in that I felt I could call her and talk to her about certain things, but we definitely had this big black hole of issues that neither of us were willing to broach. We never talked Mm. about our past. We never talked about the culture. We never talked about some of the things with other family members that we were all dealing with, but nobody wanted to bring up directly. I mean, I guess that's similar for a lot of families, right? You sort of talk around certain things. Yes, of course. But we definitely needed to talk about a lot of the past. And so the first place that I started with her when I was writing this book was a lot of the things, you know, when I was little, I would bring up, you know, why did you do this? Why did you react this way? And it definitely helped us move past a lot of things. And 
for the first time, I told my mom how I felt about it. When I was little, I feel like even if she did something that I wasn't happy with, I wasn't able to tell her how it affected me. We didn't really communicate. Like my parents never talked about feelings. It was all about this, you do that. It's all about duty. I think the biggest step for us when we started talking was to talk about how things made us felt, which sounds like such a simple thing, but it was really hard to make that step. Just for me jumping into from what I observed growing up, my mom's side was very different. So I, I think my dad's side, because he's a Taiwanese one, it's very much he's so sweet, but he doesn't really talk or discuss and he <laughs> doesn't know how to really talk about feelings as well. My mom is all feelings. So he, she's like so overwhelming for my dad. He just can't handle it. My mom's side, she loves to talk, 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 talk. And she's always like, all right, why'd you do this? Blah, blah, blah. But with my dad, he's very much like, okay, good, good. All right, good. You know, it's like, how's your day? Good, good. How's your day? Good. And then it's like, that's it. From what I learned and from what I've heard and also from other Taiwanese friends that I've had growing up, I mean, Moonlin, my girlfriend is also Taiwanese, Mm -hmm. but just seeing and observing like the grandparents, especially their generation, it was just kind of expected that the kids don't have any say and that the kids were always very obedient. And by being obedient, it meant being quiet and just doing what you were told by your parents and never arguing, never raising a question, never Mm -hmm. asking why or how or when you just do it. And I think that's just like a culture that's kind of been ingrained in children since forever. And it's how they were raised. And my mom did say to me at some point, well, I raised you the way I was raised. And, you know, in some ways I get that. That's what she thought, what the culture told her. That's how you raise really good kids that are successful and happy. And so they did what they thought was best. But that doesn't necessarily mean that it's right. There's a difference. Yeah. Yeah. And it doesn't necessarily mean it's the best for you, like the specific individual either. And I think it's hard when you have that in America, when you see everybody Everybody else is very vocal. And they get to be, you know, individualistic and whoever they want. And then you're the one stuck. I know. I'm like, I grew up hearing some kids being like, shut the fuck up to their parents. I was like, whoa, what did you just say? Oh, hell no, you did not. I'm like, you know, you're going to be dead, right? I'm not going to see you tomorrow in school. And it's like, no, you don't understand. My mom's a bitch. I was like, what? And they don't understand, right? They think your parents are so weird and you just don't even try to explain it. That's the thing. And they're like, you don't, don't let your parents run you around telling you what to do. I'm like, what world are we in right now? Like, I would like to see you say that to my mom, okay? Let's see if you're going to be alive the next day. Before your writing process, there wasn't as much communication happening. Now, fast forward to the research process and getting to understand characters a little bit deeper. What was that like approaching your mom with those questions? Were you nervous? Were you kind of freaking out? It was so scary at first. I mean, I remember, you know, my hand being a little shaky and I was oh just so gosh. emotional. And But I never really thought about going to someone else just because I felt like I had to know her story. May's story is just so specific to mine that I felt I couldn't ask anybody else. And I mm. almost didn't want to. I really wanted to know everything behind. I wanted to know my mom better. And I think I was just so scared before. But I also wanted this book to happen so badly that the two of those combined, I was finally able to ask her all these questions, even though it was really scary and I feel like once we took that first step it actually became a lot easier and I mean even now I'll think of something that I hadn't brought up before and I'll just call her on the phone and we'll talk about it and I still can't believe just how far our relationship has grown I feel like now I call my mom three times a week and I'll just call her if I'm writing and there's something I don't know and I need to ask her and you know it's almost like we're really good friends now and it's (gasps) That's pretty amazing. (laughs) I'm so happy for you. Okay, I remember that you did say there were very, very difficult questions. Is is there a question that you remember you asking your mom that was particularly, especially difficult for you to ask? Or even like if you asked a question and you received like the most mind-blowing answer and you're like, holy shit, that was like an epiphany. There was one that does come to mind. It was so much that I put it in the book as well, where when we were talking about the expectations with the dentistry and why yes. you know, my mom wanted to make sure I was okay. It did come up that I did have a family member whose parents insisted that he go to medical school and he was living in Taiwan at the time. And he went and he was so unhappy that on his graduation day, he handed his parents his diploma and then 
Uh, and this is like, <gasps> oh, wow. So that is pulled from life. And I think that shocked me a lot. We had never even talked about this before. Mm-hmm. It definitely helped me understand why my mom was coming around. Mm-hmm. Can we talk about why we think the culture is so, so insistent on education and honor? Because it's mm-hmm. not even just Taiwan. Japan, too, has some of the highest suicide rates, for example. And it's a, mm-hmm. a, a lot about honor and about being able to put a roof over your family's head and having a good job. Right. Like, why do we think that is? I don't know if it's because of guilt or whatnot. That story that you shared that's pulled from real life, that was a male. Taiwanese culture, especially, boys are number one. I would go to Queens flushing, and my mom and dad would get so much shit because. They had three daughters and my mom would get, quote unquote, the blame, not realizing, hello, is daddy sperm over here? Hey, and it's like, nope, the woman is the problem. You know, she can't bear sons. Women are useless, blah, blah, blah. I grew up hearing all that. Thank God my dad didn't believe that. Or my mom. My mom actually thought girls were better than guys and was actually quite mean. I was like, you're being sexist towards guys. Stop it. Uh, let's all be equal. Yeah, she's like, all guys are stupid. I was like, oh my God, relax. Make up for all like, the inequalities just by putting them down. So also first, thank you so much for sharing that real life example because that just shows this happens with quite a few people in Taiwan. And it's scary how it's actually almost more common back in the day with the grandparents' age. You know what yes. I mean? Like that's a problem. Yes. So why do we think our Taiwanese culture is so like drilling in it? And it's almost like you might as well be knock on wood dead if you don't get right. a certain degree or certain accolade to bring right. our family face. Like why? So I asked my mom this. This definitely came up because I really needed to understand that since that was such a core part of the book. And my mom talked about how when she was growing up in Taiwan, one of the first things that she learned in school, and this was also in the book, is that you start learning all of the Confucius filial exemplars, which are all these examples of how to honor your parents. And the examples were so out there. Like one one of the ones that she told me that I just almost couldn't believe was you're expected to taste your father's feces if he's sick to figure out what he's ill with. I've heard of that before. It's almost like what they do for the kings. Yes. And just, you know, if if your mother's hungry and it's icy outside, you have to lay your naked body on the ice to break it so that you can catch fish for her to eat, which is just so extreme. Why do you have to be naked, right? (laughs) Have you heard of the one where if your parents are starving, you slice your own flesh? Like you cut your own flesh? Yes, yes. Yes. I, I think I might have learned that from one of Amy Tan's books. And I, yes, I was just going to say that was in one of... Was know. it like the... Uh, I think it was The Kitchen God's Wife. Might have been that or might have been uh, Joy Luck Club. Either one of those. Joy Luck Club definitely had a reference Yes, to, okay. Then there we go. It was I, like the older generation that did that, yeah. Yeah, I, I, that was the first time I was exposed to that. I'm like, what is going on? I'm all about sacrificing for parents. I'm always wanting to give back, but that's a little extreme. Yeah, that's a whole other I'm like, I'm like, can I go catch some fish and slice their meat for you first? Right. Can, I, can, I, can I go hunt for a rabbit first? Because, you know, if both of us are down, we're both going to die. Like, I can't, I can't help you. Yeah, it's just coming up. Right? Like, listen, if I'm the last meat on earth, all right, I will give you my butt cheek, okay? I will. But please, let's just find other ways first. Right. But yes, I totally get it. I remember that was the first time I was, I was exposed to it. I remember bringing it up to family. And they're like, yeah, that happened all the time back then. I was like, what in the hell is going on? I totally get that. And it's just crazy. And your mom sounds like such a sweet human being who just was so (laughs) crushed by our culture back then, the olden Mm -hmm. traditions, especially, I want listeners to hear this. This is a culture that thousands of years of practice where women were second class citizens. They were not equal. Mm -hmm. I mean, even till this day, we're still fighting in America for equal pay, right? So can you imagine Mm -hmm. thousands of years ago how women were treated? And I know it's not just the Taiwanese culture. It's lots of cultures where women are lower and men had no respect for women. And unfortunately, it happens a lot in many countries still. I think for your mom to have to grow up with that, plus learning all the filial piety. And And she said it was from when they're kids. They ingrained this into you from when they're young. That's all you knew growing up. Right. And I think a big part of the problem is that because they immigrated here, they didn't keep 
growing with the times. I, they're more similar to my grandparents than they are to the current generation in Taiwan because they really held on to their beliefs when they left. I don't know if it's guilt that they left or do you want to hold on to what you know? That's who they feel that they are. But I feel like that adds to the problem is when you immigrate here, it almost becomes amplified in some way. That is such a good point about it being amplified. It's like they don't want to let go a right. lot of their sacrifices too. Coming to America, it's almost like an awakening for your parents. To, it's like, shit, I didn't have to do all that growing up. Are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Because <laughs> I know that's how that's I would feel. It comes into a lot too, right? right? That's why they want you to be financially stable with a good job. It all comes back to they have to go through so much. They don't want you to have to go through yeah, that. Exactly. It's like, oh, hell to the no. <laughs> like, no way. I did not just eat my papa's poop for no reason. You're going to get the <laughs> I swear to God. I totally get that. Okay. So now it sounds like you really had a beautiful awakening with your relationship with your mom. And so Right now, it sounds like you guys are good friends where you literally call her up for anything, like any question now. And how was that translated to when you see each other in person? A lot of times kids, and it's funny because I see my dad is not really touchy. He also doesn't hold hands or anything like that. None of that. But my mom, she loves being touchy. She loves holding hands, hugging and all Mm. that stuff. For your experiences with that communication gateway open with your mom. Do you notice if you guys are more huggy? Were you guys physical before? So I was always really affectionate growing up. My mom used to always joke, I don't know where that came from. And I sadly wonder if it's in the DNA, but for their generation, you know, it was not appropriate. And so they don't do it anymore. But my dad was actually always really sweet with me. He was a lot like the dad in the book where when I was little, he called me his palpe and, you know, he would come home. And I'd latch onto his leg and he would call me his little Xiaotangyu, his little octopus, That's you know, because so I would latch onto him. And he was always really sweet with me. And, you know, I'd always say like, pow pow, and he'd like pick me up. And, um, so he was always really affectionate with me. Again, I think that's because I was a girl. I think it was okay for girls to do that. Whereas you know, I wasn't that affectionate with my brothers. And, you know, I would kiss my dad goodnight every night and my brothers definitely didn't do that. But with my mom, I never did. Interesting. And now I am a little more affectionate with her and she's definitely much more responsive to it. Before I could tell, you know, she would stiffen a little. She just wasn't used to the hugging. And if I grab her arm when we're crossing the street or something, I think she almost even wants to be a little more like that. Oh, that's I mean, it sounds like you've been really breaking her in and just making her see a different version of the world where she Mm -hmm. now is like, you know, it's baby steps. But hey, she's taking the steps, you know, which I really admire. And when we get off the phone, she says, love you a lot of times, which is pretty big. <laughs> she said something funny to me once. I made a mistake and I was getting off the phone with your dad and I said, love you. And I was so embarrassed. Oh and I my thought God, it was that's so cute. <laughs> you can tell daddy. You that is so cute. He must have been like, who are you talking to? <laughs> and my dad is actually very open about saying that too. You know, that was something that they never said growing up. It just wasn't something you said. For them, it was you show you love your kids by providing for them and you don't ever actually communicate it. But now on the phone, they'll both say it. Look at you inspiring people, breaking them in. It was hard, though. I still remember This is so embarrassing. There was one time when I just first started dating my husband. He was over at my house and we were just being silly. And I was on his back. He was giving me a piggyback ride. And my dad walked in the room and I just let go and I just (laughs) fell backwards. (laughs) And my husband had no idea what was going on, but that's how scared I was for them to see me interacting with And now it's different and I'm fine being affectionate with him in front of them, although we're still a little careful. Yes, like a little bit of awkwardness where you're just like, okay, let's let's not push it kind of thing. But I definitely don't threaten my life every time he (laughs) wants to hug me or kiss me. I'm so happy that this is a huge progress. It just shows how much your parents love you guys to also want to make the changes as well. Right. Just to make sure that they don't lose you. This is not very common at all in American culture, but in Asian culture, I could say, I, I think this is pretty general. It doesn't have to be just Taiwanese. Disowning is yes. quite common, especially back in our parents and especially grandparents' generation. Disownment is definitely a strong topic in your book. And I was so happy that you were able to touch on that and weave that in. Did you know anybody growing up that was disowned? 
our generation that you knew or heard of? Unfortunately, I have a lot of experience with this. My parents never disowned me, but we did go through some rough periods. And when I was writing this book, it was almost easier for us to not talk for a little while because we didn't know how to communicate. And I unfortunately do know personally a lot of disownment stories from a lot of people who are very close to me. And I wanted to write this book because I wanted people to know that it does happen. It's something that people don't talk about for obvious reasons. It's something very hard to bring up, something you don't want anybody who's not that close to you to know. And I actually was really shocked by how many people reached out to me to say, I read your book and that actually happened to someone in my family or to me. And it's sadly a lot more common than people think just because people don't talk about it. Were there things that you heard growing up where it was like, okay, rumors versus truth when it comes to disownment of what, quote unquote, the parents thought why they deserve to be disowned? Did you find out then when you grew up that, okay, wow, like the reasons why they were disowned was not what I originally heard. It had nothing to do with what I thought. And it was actually not a big deal at all. Definitely. There's quite the range of examples. For an example of the one end of, I can't believe that warranted disowning. Mm-hmm. Um, I know that this is the truth. Um, that this isn't a rumor. I guess there are different levels of disowning. Yes. But in the culture, for some, they believe that dyeing your hair is synonymous with... Actually, I'm not even sure why. I've heard from some people it's because it's associated with criminals. Tattooing and dyeing the hair. I know someone who dyed their hair and was disowned over that, but it was a temporary thing and it was almost a tactic to teach them a lesson time out yes like to teach them how serious it was although it was definitely magnitudes larger than a timeout where there were other things involved where the disownment did actually happen and then eventually they made up but it has happened for things as small as that to as large as i know several people who are disowned because of who they married oh my gosh this is really good for listeners to hear, especially people who are not familiar with our culture. I'm sure there are going to be some people who read it who are not of Taiwanese heritage who are like, wait, does this really happen? Because it's so extreme and the cultural clash is other opposite spectrums. I'm so glad that you're able to share this real life experiences of what you've heard and observed. I'm really happy that this is out here so people can hear, Mm -hmm. okay, this happens. This story is as genuine and as authentic as they come. And to Mm -hmm. really read it without any kind of doubt. I think that's really important for me too. And that's another reason I wanted to write the book, just because I feel like it's really hard to explain some of these things to someone. And a lot of revision went into making sure that it was readable for everyone. But at the same time, it was very honest and it portrayed everything accurately. I also wanted to point out that there is a lot of humor throughout the book. I wrote it in the vein of a Asian version of my Big Fat Greek Wedding, where I wanted a lot of the funnier things looking at the Chinese culture from an American point of view, some of the funny things that can come about. I really tried to capture that in the book. I know, Yin, you and I had a little discussion about some of the funny things that the family will tell you to do. And I thought it might be fun to share that with listeners. Oh, my gosh. You want to go first? Um, Yeah. So a couple of the examples from the book are the mom is always pushing May to drink papaya smoothies because there's a belief that eating papaya will make your boobs grow. And that was something that was really prevalent for me growing up. And you said it was for you, too. Yes, it was. My aunt. On my dad's side, his sister would tell me that I'm so flat chested, like a table, like a wall, that I needed to drink this papaya soup, this magical papaya soup, (laughs) just so my boobs would grow larger than a mosquito bite size. That's so funny. I heard the mosquito bites too. Ain't nothing wrong with mosquito bites, all right? We are in a country that embraces all sizes, big, small, whatever. And then so they're like, you know what? If it really doesn't work, You might think about boob surgery and also think about cutting your eyelids because your eyes are so small. It looks like you're not old. And I'm like, girl, you are literally perpetuating the Mm -hmm. racist stereotypes yourself. Some people do that. I guess the ones specifically my dad's side very much adore the Western looks and they think bigger eyes, bigger boobs Mm -hmm. are great. They want the lighter skin. Yes, they want the lighter skin. And they also told me to go get rhinoplasty and nose surgery because they're like, your wow. nose is too big and all but of that. Isn't that a good thing? Because that was another example. I was told my whole life that I have a big nose, but it was a good thing because it meant I'd have a lot of money. 
I didn't remember hearing that. I wish I did because I would have used that as a company. Maybe your nose isn't big enough. <laughs> Girl, I would be so poor with my small ass nose. <laughs> I mean, it's just insane, the stereotype. And I remember also my aunts were like, you're too short. You need to jump taller. You literally need to jump every day. That is so funny. The jumping. I haven't heard that. What? Are you serious? <laughs> did, did you have a specific form? Did you have to like reach for the sky or anything or just jump? They told me to keep putting my hands up and they're like, just keep jumping up. I was like, <laughs> what in the world do you think I do with my life? I just stand there the whole day and jump up. And then you know what? Basketball. Basketball is good. It'll help stretch your bones and stretch you. <laughs> and you know, there's actually a thing in China where they can add bone structure or something. They said they can actually what? like make you taller. Like, I don't know how true that is, but that's what they heard, quote unquote. And I'm like, oh. listen, I ain't getting any of that stuff done in China, first of all, because yeah. uh, I'm going to come back with like giraffe legs or something. I'm like, uh-uh. <laughs> it's just insane. But it was so funny. All the things that we grew up hearing, I was able to see it in the book and read it. And it brought me back to the times of my aunts and all that. So now it's true. You're right. Like we just laugh about it because it's just so ridiculous. I'll be honest. For me personally, it did mess with me. Like I really had a warped perspective of how I looked. Right. I did too. Definitely. Yeah. See, I actually never was able to laugh about anything because I couldn't even see it from any other point of view before, which was why I wanted to write it this way, because I feel like it does help sometimes if you're laughing about it, you know, it helps you realize how ridiculous some of these things are and you don't have to feel like that's what determines your worth. And I feel like it took me, you know, 30 years before I could kind of see everything this way. And when you're growing up that way and you're in it, it's really hard. But if you can find the humor, I feel like, you know, it helps you cope. I mean, now when things happen with my parents, I'm laughing about it or I know I can use it later in a story. It definitely helps in the moment not to take it so seriously. Yeah. Thank you for a book like this. The story is so beautifully told. Thank you. And I do want to jump in with questions by our listeners. So Benny Long said, this is your second time being interviewed by me. How does it feel to be interviewed as a published writer this time around? And along with what Karis Rogerson asked, they both were wondering, how is it like being a debut author? I'm still wrapping my head around it. I mean, being on this show, like I said before, is a dream come true. Although. I feel kind of like we're just chatting and having good times. So. <laughs> Hell yeah, yeah. <laughs> like it hasn't sunk in yet that I'm going to be on this show. <laughs> and debut year has been amazing so far. I've been really honored that the book has been received well and gotten quite a few starred trade reviews. And I was really just so happy that the reviewers really understood the book, even though at least I'm not sure, but I think a lot of them, you know, didn't come from this background, but I think they really got May's story, which just was amazing. And I've had a lot of readers reach out, which has definitely been the best part of this. I remember when I was on the 88th episode, I said something about how I dreamed about my book reaching one person and helping them. And we laughed about it and that's happened. And it is everything that I imagined it. Oh, I'm so happy for you, Gloria. Oh my gosh, you have no idea. Like, me and Moon keep talking about you at home, like me and Moonlin, and we're like, we're so proud of her. She's so sweet. Because I still, like, I remember, like, you've been there with our community since before we turned one years old. I still remember that because I remember you were randomly selected as one of our eight winners for our first birthday giveaway. Crazy coincidental. And also, how You've always been so sweet and so kind. Oh, and you've, you. you've always been so supportive of us too. And it, it's just insane. Like we just talk about it all the time at home. We're just like, holy shit, this is Gloria's book in our hands right now. Like how insane <laughs> is this? Like it's so amazing. I'm so proud of you. Okay, so Catherine Locke wrote, she's so excited and she loves your cover so much. She'd love to know how much input you had on the cover design. I feel so lucky with this cover. I absolutely love it. I feel like my designer... Sarah Creech knocked it out of the park. She had the hot chocolate on the cover, which is a big part of the book. And there's a scene halfway through the book where May's with her crush and they're out to get coffee and she decides to order hot chocolate, which is what she wants, even though it's going to make her look really juvenile. And it turns out that he also likes it and it becomes something for them. She captured a lot of kind of the heart of the story and what makes May who she is. And I was also really lucky they did take some of my input, although really when I got the image it's it was basically already where it was today the few tweaks that I did make was I asked for the MIT dome to be captured on it 
at MIT, there's this iconic structure. It's kind of in the middle of campus and it's just this 150 foot dome that goes up into the air. And the students like to play pranks on it. Like when Harry Potter came out, they put a big scar on top of it. The first prank that they ever did was they put a police car on top of it and there was even a fake cop and donuts and coffee um, in it. And so that's just one of the things that we like to do on campus. They call it hacking. I think it originated before the term that we use now, you know, hacking with computers, but it's like playing pranks. And I don't want to spoil anything, but there are a few scenes that take place on top of the dome in the book. And so I felt like that was kind of a great thing to represent the campus and the college setting. And there's also funny things around the dome, like there are Asian tourists that are always taking pictures of the dome and they ask for students to take pictures of the students, which definitely happened all the time when I was there. Oh they were there were just constantly Asian tourists everywhere. My grandma knows two English words. One is hello and the other is MIT. And that is she knew so that before cute. I went there. So. <laughs> so they did a beautiful job with the MIT dome and then I also asked them to represent May's Asian side and I suggested a dumpling and I thought she made the cutest dumpling and chopsticks for the doodles on the top. And like I said before, now it's kind of a theme. It's on the spine. It's stamped under the dust jacket. And one thing that I thought was interesting was when the cover image came back to me, May, the model has bangs. Mm. And I hadn't imagined her to have bangs in the book, but it actually inspired me. And I ended up going back and tweaking the book and adding in a storyline where May cuts her own bangs to cover up this mole that she has on her forehead that she's embarrassed of. And that is taken from real life. I have a mole on my forehead that isn't quite in the center, but it's pretty close. And I did have a lot of friends of my parents who would come up to me and touch it and say like, oh, too bad it's not in the center, you know, and they would reference Buddha and talk about how if it had been the center, I would have been so lucky. So I wrote a whole storyline around that. And so I really loved that they let me tweak the cover a little bit and they also inspired my writing as well. That's insane because I never hear the cover inspiring the actual writing itself. So this is the first time I've heard that. That is a really cool tidbit. Thank you for sharing that. Now I'm sure Catherine will be even more excited to hear that. (laughs) Thank you for the awesome question, Catherine. All right. So Vanessa Andrew, she said, first of all, she's so excited to read this and she's so happy for you. She would love to know more about your writing process in regards to tools or methods uh, that you use to help with plotting and revising. So with revising, I wrote a lot of posts on my blog that you can check out. I wrote a few before I ever edited with an agent, and then I wrote some after I edited with my agent and my editor kind of to give readers an idea of how the process differs. And then with plotting and drafting, I feel like one big thing I've learned recently is that every book is different. And so I kind of feel like you have to relearn how the process is going to work for that specific book. For example, with American Panda, the mom came to me so quickly and she practically wrote herself, you know, Mm. all of her little hand gestures of slapping the air and the tongue clucks, you know, those just were so easy to write. And I actually struggled more with the romance storyline, mostly because I didn't want May to make any decisions because of the guy. I wanted him to play a role, but not to be the central part of the story. And because of that, it took me quite a few revision rounds Actually, it wasn't until my last revision round with my editor that I feel like I kind of figured out who he was. And so depending on the book, you're going to be struggling with different things. And in my second book, which I'm drafting now, it's going to come out in 2019. It's the opposite, where the romance is kind of the central storyline. And so that actually came to me very easily. And it's been so easy to write. But I'm having a really hard time figuring out the mother and the relationship between her and her daughter. Oh, wow. And so it's kind of funny. It's the exact flip. <laughs> I know. I was like, that's so insane. But also congratulations on your second book thank that you're you. working on already. It's so exciting. Oh my gosh. Yeah, thank you. It just sold. So I get to work with my same editor again, which I'm so excited about and Pulse, which has been, they've been so great. So I'm really excited. Congratulations. That's so exciting. Thank oh you. Gosh. I'm squealing over here like a pig. <laughs> okay, so that was amazing. Thank you for sharing that and also letting us know about your book coming up too. That's insane. And it's back to back. So that's very exciting news. Melissa C said she's so excited for your book. She's been waiting for it since it was announced as a book deal. And she'd love to know how did you make May's voice solid and distinct? That's very flattering. Thank you that 
she's so solid in this thing because I feel like I just wrote May to embody all of my weirdness. <laughs> so I feel like I just kind of played up, you know, a lot of the strange thoughts that I have. I guess one example of that is when she's in the gross anatomy lab and they're about to go into the cadaver's brain for the day and the professor asks, you know, who wants to do the honors today with the bone saw? And everybody raises their hand and May's first thought is there must have been a mistake because he couldn't have just asked that. He must have just asked, like, who's scared of this tool that's specifically designed to cut through bones and flesh and, you know, everything that keeps us together. And that happened to me when I was in the gross anatomy lab. I was the only one who didn't jump forward to use this bone saw and I was the only one who was really scared. And so I feel like a lot of May's reactions are just, you know, me picking some of the weirder, funnier, awkward incidents from my life. I don't think it's weird or awkward. I think it's so <laughs> cute and refreshing. So I just had to say that. Okay. So Catherine Maria said she's thrilled you're on the show that we're interviewing you. She loves this so much. She says, Gloria, I know you've listened to many of these episodes. Are there any answers you envisioned giving on this side of the podcast? She can't wait to read your book and also listen to your episode. I actually didn't. I mean, like you said, I started listening a long time ago. And at that point, I was just so desperate to find an agent. And, you know, when I started out on this journey, I knew it was going to be a really long road. And I kept telling myself to just look at it one day at a time. So I never really envisioned myself. I mean, this is a dream come true. And I never really thought that it would be possible. So I'm still wrapping my head around it right now. <laughs> oh, you're so sweet. So I'm going to ask her second question. She says, was the voice different at all when you changed it from women's fiction to YA? And what do you like about YA? Oh, that's a good question. So for um, the listeners who don't know, this book went through a lot of rewrites and a lot of different categories and age groups just because of the college setting. I knew that there would be pushback in young adult because young adult usually ends at age 17 in high school. And so I, I had tried this book as new adult. I tried it as women's fiction. And so I rewrote it several times and the voice never changed. I changed the point of view from first person to third person. And I think that was a sign that, I mean, I should be writing young adult because May's voice is so YA. That's what a lot of the agents were telling me when I was trying to query this as women's fiction. They kept saying your voice is so YA. And my now agent actually said, if you write YA, you know, you query me again because I feel like that's where your voice is. At the time, I should have just rewritten the book for YA, but it, it didn't even occur to me. And so the voice actually didn't change, which is a sign that this book always belonged in the YA category. And the reason I love YA so much is that you can have a voice like this. I feel you get a closeness to the characters in YA that you seldom see in other kinds of fiction. And I can't put my finger on exactly why, but I've just always been so in love with YA. Like we said before, that was what I was reading when I was in dental school and really having a tough time. And young adult books were the one thing that really helped me get through it more so than other books. I look at this full circle. You're putting books out there for people who are going through tough times too, to also have your book in their hands to make them oh, happy. So really nice way to look but isn't that insane though? Like it's just a full circle. Now all, especially the Taiwanese kids who are in dentistry or any doctor's yeah. situation. It's like, F this. I'm over this. I'm going to do what I'd love to do. Before we jump into the next question, she also wanted to throw in and say that she loved your post about questions to ask current clients of offering agents. And she used them when she first signed with her agent. Oh, and she that's smiley face. Next question, Jody Armsby Gallegos. She says that she's so excited for your interview. She first heard about American Panda through the 88th episode, and she loves, loves, loves this book. Next, we have Megan LaCroix. She said, ah, Gloria Chow, heart emojis. She says she asked you a version of this question in her own interview on her site. She'd love to elaborate on the hurdles that you faced when trying to write or market a young adult book set in college. Are there any tips for other writers trying to do the same? And she thinks it's time that YA expanded past the traditional high school setting. And she's so happy and proud of you for tackling and accomplishing that with your debut. It definitely was a hurdle. I know I had pushback, especially when we were selling the book. I did hear from people in the industry after, not officially, that they had a hang up with the college setting and that was what ended up swaying them one way or the other. So it is mm. definitely still an issue. I think part of it is that 
there just aren't that many college books out there and they don't know how to market it. They don't quite know where to place it. And so unfortunately, I feel there still is a really long way to go. I don't really have any tips, except if you think it's important for your story, I would stick with it. I felt my book couldn't take place in another time because May had to be out of the house. She had to be away from her parents to start seeing the world through different eyes. And since this story was so close to my experience, you know, I knew that this wouldn't have happened for her when she was in high school. For me, it happened when I was in college as well. I felt like if I had changed that part of the book, we would have just had a completely different story. Going in, just knowing that there is going to be a hurdle also helps. I knew that this would take a lot longer to get an agent, get a book deal if it ever did. And I was still okay with going for it despite that, just because I felt it was important enough to the story to give it a shot. Now, Winnie Jenkins, she said she's so excited for your book. It's so cool having a book about a college student. And she says that she feels like being a college student is a really awkward middle of trying to be an adult, but not feeling like one. Mm, yes. She would love to know how you revise your final novel. There's different stages of the revising before I got my agent. My husband actually reads my books and gives me the most in-depth feedback. He's read almost every version of everything I've ever written, actually. That's so awesome. <laughs> I think it helps to have someone. It doesn't have to be a family member. It doesn't even have to be someone that you know, but just someone that you can trust and that you're close enough with that you can feel comfortable going back and forth and asking them to clarify on things. I think one of the most important things I've learned about revisions is that a lot of times it's not about what they're saying, but why. A lot of times if they give you, you should change X to Y. That change may not be the right answer, but there's definitely something underlying that you want to at least make sure that you're thinking about and addressing in some way. And revising with my agent and editor, it was the same thing. I feel having the phone calls to go through why they were thinking what they were thinking and to brainstorm new ideas was the best way to come up with solutions. And a lot of times the changes ended up being actually very small. It felt like a big problem, but sometimes it was tweaking one detail in the backstory that would have a chain effect, but it's finding that solution. That's the hardest part. So Winnie asked the last question, but you should know that our other members, Christy Mona, Tara Turley Creel, Tia Bearden, Katie Rosepool, and Judy Lynn jumped in and they're so freaking excited for you. And they're so proud of you. They're so happy for you. And they're excited about all these questions that were asked for you and they can't wait to hear it. And they think you're so amazing. So well, just know that so you much. have a lot of love, a lot of love. And they're all so freaking excited for you. So now Gloria, let's wrap it up with recommending your top favorite books that helped the craft of writing. If you have any go-to book that you'd love to recommend for the rest of our community to check out. Okay. So one book that really helped with finding the plot of American Panda is Writing the Breakout Novel by Donald Math. And this book started out as a series of anecdotes and funny little things that had happened to me. And I couldn't figure out kind of some of the main character arcs and some of the main plot lines until I read this book, which helped me zero in on the climax scene at the end. And it really walks you through the important points that you need to hit in the novel. And so I felt like that's a really good place to start if you're just having a really hard time figuring out what specifically your novel needs to be about. Which is funny because the book was a lot about my life, but I think because it was so close to me, it was really hard for me to zero in on that. So with the second book, when I was a little bit stuck on one of the big turning points, I went back to the book and looked through my notes and, and it helped as well. That is very, very helpful. Gloria, please let everyone know where they can find you on social media so they can say hi. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at the handle Gloria C. Chow. And my last name is spelled C-H-A-O. And my website is gloriachow.wordpress.com. And that wraps up our episode with Gloria Chow. Gloria, oh my God, I have to say it again. I am so proud of you and I loved having you on the show. Thank you for a wonderful discussion. Storytellers, thank you so much for hanging out and listening in as always and hanging tight during our hiatus. Please say hi to Gloria on Twitter at Gloria C. Ciao. And head over to her show notes page at 88cupsofteacom slash podcast slash Gloria dash Chow. Be sure to look out for the American Panda exclusive excerpt just for our 88 Cups of Tea family, along with an adorable cartoon that ties in with the excerpt. For our writers, 
Don't forget to scroll all the way down to the bottom of Gloria's show notes page to grab your download of her exclusive 88 Cups of Tea writing prompt to help you push past writer's block. As a reminder, head over to our 88 Cups of Tea account today to watch Gloria's Instagram takeover at instagram.com slash 88 Cups of Tea. You'll get a sneak peek of her life as a writer, and she's also giving away a signed copy of American Panda to one lucky winner in the U.S. Now for my New York listeners, I'll be moderating a panel called Seven Asian American Authors You Should Be Reading, hosted by the New York Public Library and features authors Stacey Lee, Rhoda Baeza, Sona Charapatra, Emily XR Pan, Karuna Riazi, and two of our very own 88 Cups of Tea guests, Heidi Heilig and Jenny Han. It's happening in New York on Saturday, February 17th at 1 p.m. at the Chatham Square Library location. This is my first panel discussion that I'm moderating, and I would love for you to be there. If you enjoyed today's episode, or if it helped you in any way, I would love to ask you for your support in taking a moment to subscribe to 88 Cups of Tea on iTunes, and please leave a rating and a review. Producing a podcast takes a lot of time, and we put a lot of heart and soul into making 88 Cups of Tea the best that it can be. When you take those specific steps of subscribing, leaving a rating, and a review, that really helps our show become more visible to new listeners who haven't heard of us before, and we're really trying to get the word out about our podcast. So thank you so much in advance for helping us grow our community. I really appreciate it. Don't forget to join our private Facebook group if you want to hang out with fellow writers and listeners from 88 Cups of Tea. I am so excited to see you in there. You can find us at facebook.com slash groups slash 88 Cups of Tea. Have a wonderful and super productive rest of your week and I'll catch you next Thursday. Hey guys, it's me again. Thanks so much for listening in on 88 Cups of Tea. Go create something magical today and I'll catch you in the next episode. Bye.